Psalm 108, reading from verse 1. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in his holiness. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter, Moab is my washbasin, upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Amen. Now Psalm 108 is probably not one that most of us are all that familiar with. Certainly not as well known as something like Psalm 23, The Lord's My Shepherd. But to an Israelite reading this psalm, it might well have had a bit of a familiar ring to it. Because the fact is that the words of Psalm 108 are very similar to other words that we see in Psalm 57 and Psalm 60. Many of them are identical. But here in Psalm 108, these words from two other psalms have been put together for a new situation. Those other two psalms both speak about ways in which God delivered his people. One of them was was an individual deliverance, one of them was corporate, but they're about deliverance. And now, at the time when Psalm 108 was written, God's people and the psalmist find themselves in need of deliverance again. Now, we don't know all the situation and all the details of the situation that they were in, but it does seem quite apparent there's a real felt need of deliverance as this psalm is written. So it's a new situation, a new need, but the same familiar words. The same familiar words because they're still calling on the same familiar God. He's delivered them in the past, and they can trust him still to deliver them in the present, to come good on what he has promised for them. Because what we see this evening ultimately is that Psalm 108 points us to the one who we can trust wholeheartedly, the one who will deliver on what he has promised. And we know that he will because he's done it before and he hasn't changed. But the psalm does take us on a bit of a journey first to get there. It takes us on a journey, and its message is relevant to all of us wherever we feel we are on that journey. You might feel that your life is a bit more, have you not abandoned us? Have you not rejected us, O God? And a bit less, my heart is steadfast, O God. But the message is relevant to us wherever we feel we are, because this psalm is about how it feels to trust our faithful God. There's three main points you'll see on your service seat. It says, God is faithful. God has promised, and when faith meets life, God will deliver. And so we can trust God. He's faithful, he's made a promise, and when faith meets with real life, God will deliver. So we'll follow along now with the writer and really try and hear what it is that God is saying to us. But let me pray briefly. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us in your word. Thank you that these words written so long ago are still relevant to us. Help us to be 
free from any distractions in our mind, and to listen to what you have to say to us this evening. And we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, the first heading, God is faithful. You may well have noticed that this psalm starts with an exuberant tone of praise. It says, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. The psalmist loves God. His heart, we're told, is steadfast and he feels secure. And he wants to praise God with all of his being because of that. He calls the instruments to wake up and praise God as well. And whereas usually the dawn would wake us, here the psalm is waking it. He says, wake up dawn, it's time to praise God. And that's quite a thought, isn't it? What has inspired this kind of a love for God? Well, let's look on first at verse 3. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This psalmist's love is, is heartfelt, and it's something that he wants to spread. Do you notice there's a focus here on peoples and nations? He says, I will give thanks to you among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. And verse 5, let your glory be over all the earth. So it's a a pretty special kind of love which the psalmist here has got for God. It's so good that he wants to wake up the instruments and wake up the dawn so that they'll join in and they'll praise God too. And it's so good that he wants the peoples, the nations, and all the earth to know about it as well. So why? Why praise God? Why sing praises to him among the nations? And why call for his glory to be over all the earth? Well, we're given the reason for that in verse 4. It says, For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. So praise God for his steadfast love. Praise God for his faithfulness. Praise him among the nations, exalt him above the heavens, and let his glory be over all the earth because of his steadfast love and faithfulness. Let's, let's dwell on those two things for a little while, because what is God's steadfast love? How does he show it to us? If you were here last week, you'll know we looked at Psalm 107 together, which showed us something of what it feels like to be loved by God, to experience his steadfast love. And one of the things which you see in that psalm is that living under God's steadfast love doesn't necessarily mean that that everything's easy all of the time, because in that psalm there were some real situations of need. People had to cry out to God in their trouble. Their circumstances changed, but the steadfast love of God didn't. The circumstances that they were in went through peaks and troughs, but the steadfast love of God didn't. The steadfast love of God is shown again and again in the way that he comes through for his people, the way that he delivers them. And though they may be battered and bruised, they are not defeated. God's steadfast love, we're told, endures forever. And in fact, you see that kind of language all over the Psalms. It's as if the most natural descriptor of God's steadfast love is that it endures forever. It does not end. His commitment to love his people is forever. So back to, back to Psalm 108. We're told God's steadfast love is great above the heavens and his faithfulness reaches to the clouds. It goes way up high. Now, 
if you looked off for seat, not at the moment, you can't see it here actually, but on your way home, if you looked off for seat, you'll notice that at around 251 meters or 823 feet, according to a reliable online encyclopedia, at that height, it stops. It stops, and there's no more offer seat left. There's only sky above that. Now, if you look to a much taller peak, if you look to a Monroe or one of the Alps, that stopping point is quite significantly higher, and there'll probably be some days when you can't actually see it. But it is there. There is a stopping point. For these magnificent hills and mountains, there's a point at which that magnificence ends. We're told that's not so with God's faithfulness. His faithfulness reaches to the clouds. And the point is this. God is faithful. He is always faithful. And there is no end to his faithfulness. Even if we are faithless, God is faithful. So what does God's faithfulness really mean for us? What what does that actually mean? Well, it means um, that he's reliable. It means that God will do what he says he's going to do. He's not going to change his mind on a whim. He's the kind of God where you know where you stand with him. He's faithful. So can we trust God? Is he going to deliver? Well, Sam here says yes. It says yes, God is faithful, so of course we can rely on him. In fact, in verse 6, what we see is the psalmist calling out for deliverance for God's people. And he does so with confidence. He cries out to God with confidence because he knows that God has delivered his people before. He knows God is faithful to what he's promised. He has got a track record when it comes to delivering his people, and he can be relied upon. And actually, that still is true today. God hasn't changed. We can cry out to God for salvation with confidence. We can cry out with confidence for deliverance because God, our faithful God, has provided the means by which we can be delivered in sending Jesus to die for our sins. God is faithful. And in the details of our everyday lives, though, it's probably worth asking, what does that look like to believe that God is faithful? What difference does it make if we believe that God is faithful? We've already said it means we can rely on what he says. It means we can trust him to do what he says he will do. And it means that when we read our Bibles, it's not just spiritual truth for our thought life, but what we are reading are the very words of our faithful God, words which he really means. God is faithful to his word and to his people, and we can hand over every part of our lives to him. That's what it means to believe in a faithful God, that we can hand over everything to him. Whether it's a workload which is simply overwhelming, whether it's health difficulties which we're struggling with, or financial troubles, or even frustration about making what feels like little or no progress at all in growing more like Jesus. We can trust in our faithful God. That doesn't mean we absolve ourselves of all responsibility, but we can hand our lives and every part of it over to God. He's told us we needn't be anxious about food or clothing. He's told us our acceptance before him is based on what Christ has done entirely and not on our own accomplishments. So are we trusting him? Maybe you're here tonight and you're, you're not yet a convinced Christian. Well, I wonder if you find this an attractive picture of a God who is faithful, a God who does what he says he will, who we can rely on and who you 
can rely on. God is faithful, but the challenge is, are we trusting him? Now, we've seen already that the the psalmist rather starts by praising God for his faithfulness. He continues that journey that he's begun by recounting a promise which God had made to his people. And that takes us to the the second heading that's on your sheet. Um, In one of the church Bibles, if you turn over the page to page 508, you will see the promise that God made. God has promised, and it's in verses 7, 8, and 9. It says, God has promised in his holiness, with exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter, Moab is my wash basin, upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. So that there is the promise that God made. He's faithful, he's made a promise, that's the promise. It's a promise to divide up various pieces of land in Israel and the surrounding nations. But we're probably inclined to ask, what's it actually all about? Because there's a lot of place names there, and most of them are are not hugely familiar to a lot of us in here. However, God has decided nearly a quarter of this psalm would be taken up with this particular promise for these particular places. So there's got to be some kind of relevance to it. So let's try and understand. It seems that this, this promise relates to the settlement of the promised land, the promised land which God had said he would give to his people. Now that particular promise was made first of all to Abraham and to his family and it wasn't fulfilled until much much later. But all the places listed here are significant in relation to that promise. We've got Shechem and Succoth first of all, they're either sides of the river Jordan and they were the first parts of the promised land which were occupied by Jacob after he spent time with Laban. Gilead was the Israelite territory on the east of the river Jordan Manasseh was on both sides of the river, and Ephraim and Judah were the main tribes on the west of it. So what the psalmist is doing here, basically, is very briefly calling to mind the the distinctive areas of Israel, which God had promised in his holiness to divide up amongst his people. Edom is pictured as the enemy in this psalm. Edom is given the lowest place. This idea of, of casting a shoe is um, it's a picture of someone returning home and slinging their shoes to a slave or into a corner. So that helps a bit, but we still have to ask, what is this all about? In the broadest terms, what do verses 7, 8, and 9 actually mean? I think it helps us to answer that if we just look at the bigger picture of what's happening here. The bigger picture is God's people are given the land that God promised them, and God's enemies are given the lowest place. God has promised, and we've already seen that God is faithful. But if we take a step away from this psalm for just a few minutes, what are some of the promises that God has made to us? Because in an earthly sense, we don't have a promised land anymore. That was a particular promise for a particular people at a particular time, and that promise was not made to us here. Likewise, this uh, treading down of foes that verse 13 talks about, that doesn't sound very much like it's for us either. So what does it mean? Well, in the New Testament, we're told there is still a war going on. But in many ways, the foe is seen to be fiercer, and the stakes are even higher. Paul writes, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. So God's promises to us today are not for the land of Israel or for the treading down of literal foes. 
But God does promise that all who believe in Jesus will be saved. And God promises that the good work he has begun in us, he will bring to completion. I wonder if you're ever inclined to think that having saved us by the death of his only son, God would then leave us to the tyranny of sin and do nothing more in our lives. Having begun a relationship with us at such a great cost, will he then just leave us to our own devices? Well, not at all. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And having sent his son to be the saviour of the world, do you think that God would then take no part in getting that message out to all the peoples? Does he just send Jesus and say, go tell everyone else by yourselves? Well, not at all. Jesus, when he told his followers to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, said, I am with you always to the end of the age. God promises that the good work he's begun in us, he will bring to completion. And God promises that there will be a place in his saving purposes for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And when you put it like that, it does have a little bit of a familiar ring to it. It's starting to sound a bit like Psalm 108. God will bring his people into the promised inheritance, and God will bring people from all the nations into his promised inheritance. So just ask briefly, what does it look like for us to believe that God has promised? What does that look like in normal life? Well, take as an example, first of all, the kind of promises that we make each other all the time. You arrange to see a friend for a meal or a coffee. Your friend says, I'll be there at such and such a time. What will believing that promise look like for you? It's quite simple. If if, if your friend says they'll be there at seven, then you turn up at seven. They've said they'll do something, you believe them, and so you act on it. Now, if they're the kind of person who's not very good at that sort of thing, then you probably won't put the same efforts in to turn up on time. But generally speaking, if you believe a promise, you'll act on it. Now, if we're to believe what God has promised, that means knowing what he's promised, and then acting on it, acting on it as if we really believed that what he's promised is true. Now, we can apply that to some of these wonderful promises that we have in the New Testament. What does it mean? It means, it means that trusting that God, who did not withhold his only son from me, will not withhold anything else from me that is for my good. I really need to believe that he's out for my good. He is. And it means trusting that Jesus really is with us when we go out into the world and seek to obey his will. He said he would be. God is a faithful God and God has promised. So the natural question to ask next is, does that mean it's a simple case of just trusting the faithful God? He's faithful, he's promised, we trust him, end of story. Because the fact is, it often doesn't feel as simple as that, does it? And I don't think that for the psalmist it's as simple as just that either. Having begun his psalm saying, My heart is steadfast, O God, he then goes on in verse 10. He asks God, Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. Where has the steadfastness that we saw in verse 1 gone to? This is the God whose steadfast love is above the heavens, whose faithfulness reaches to the clouds. How can the psalmist start speaking to God like that? We know God is faithful. He's unendingly faithful. And he's made a promise to his people. 
I promise to deliver them and to take them safely home. And now the psalmist starts questioning whether God is with his people at all. Now the psalmist starts asking if God has rejected them. So what's actually going on here? What we see in these last few verses, and which I think is really very helpful in the way that it's put, because it's something that probably most of us can identify with and relate to. What we see in these last few verses is what it often feels like to trust in God's promises now. What it feels like when faith meets with real life. And that takes us to the third and final point on the handout you have. When faith meets life, God will deliver. The psalmist looks about at his circumstances. There's an enemy looming. It feels as if God has rejected his people. Things are certainly not going as well as they were hoping that they would. So they're obviously asking, has God left us? And likewise, with us. When we're in the midst of struggling against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, it doesn't often feel like an easy ride, does it? It doesn't feel like we're on the winning side. When a friend or a relative thinks I'm an idiot because I believe in Jesus, it doesn't feel like I'm on the winning side. When I fail yet again in the struggle of ongoing sin in my life, it doesn't feel like I'm on the winning side. Our war, the struggle that we are in now as God's people, is primarily on two fronts. We war against sin in our own lives and in the life of the church. And we war against the devil, the devil who is the prince of this world and whose kingdom of darkness holds sway in the present age. We war against him to win people for the kingdom of God. Now, putting the the promises of God in simpler terms, God has promised to make us, his people, holy like him. And God has promised to use us, his people, to spread that good news to all the world, to spread the good news about Jesus so that others can be a part of his kingdom too. And if you're a partaker of those promises, then you're also part of a war. You'll know it's not easy. In some ways, it's a bit of a strange war because it's it's easier for the people who are on the losing side because they don't need to struggle against anything. But as God's people, we are called to fight. And you'd probably expect that to be difficult, wouldn't you? The Christian life is not easy. It's not described as a narrow road for no reason. It's described that way because that's what it is. It's single-mindedly following in Jesus' footsteps. Of course, it's only possible because of Christ's death in our place. But there is still real hardship for Christ's followers to go through. Perhaps for you that just means being left out of the conversation at the water cooler or feeling like you do not fit in with your old friends anymore, like you're some sort of alien. Maybe your Christian life is difficult because all of a sudden you realize that in many respects, the way that you'd been living your whole life before you were a Christian is not the way that God wants you to live anymore. God wants you to live a new life, and it's so different to what you've become accustomed to. It's difficult. Putting sin to death and standing out for Jesus, these are not easy things to do. The Christian life is not easy because it's a war against the spiritual forces of evil. But, and it's important buts, we're told, it's a war where we're on the winning side. It's difficult because there are enemies to defeat. But victory is sure because God has promised. 
in his holiness. God's promises, you see, are of a whole different order to our promises. I can't tell you how many times I've had someone promise to be there at seven and they're not there at seven. But God's promises are in his holiness. Out of his otherness, his set-apartness, he has made a promise. And when faith meets life, God will deliver. God, the faithful God, has made us, his people, promises. He's got a perfect track record of keeping those promises, and we can trust him still. It might not always feel like we're on the winning side, but we needn't expect it to. When faith meets life, God will deliver. Notice finally how the psalm ends. Look again at the last two verses. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So we've said already, the psalmist maybe doesn't feel like God is with him in quite the way that he would like him to be. But he does recognize that when he's really in need, it's God he's got to call on. Vain is the salvation of man. Do you see that in verse 12? Often it takes difficult circumstances to really teach us that, but I think we know it's true. Vain is the salvation of man. You can't rely on it. Man is not faithful in the way that God is. Man cannot deliver in the way that God can. Ultimately, the only deliverance that really works is the deliverance that we experience through faith in Jesus Christ. Vain is the salvation of man. So let's ask ourselves then, when do we look to the salvation of man? Probably the context given in the psalm here is helpful. It's when we feel like we're up against it. It's when it looks like maybe God isn't with us. In those situations, we often do look to man for salvation. God can't help me to achieve my goals, I think. So I'll need to look somewhere else. God isn't doing a good enough job of looking after my well-being, my health, my finances. I'll need to look elsewhere. And what the psalmist states here very plainly is something that we find out when we look elsewhere. When we look elsewhere, we find out vain is the salvation of man. But with God, we shall do valiantly. With God, we win. He has our best interests at heart. He is working out an everlasting deliverance for us. And he is the faithful God who's made promises to us, his people, and is bringing them about in the most perfect way. When faith meets life, we can trust him. Now, if you're not yet trusting in God, you can change that. Faith works in real life. We can trust God, he'll deliver. The psalmist has taken a bit of a journey to get there, but he does end this psalm on a note of triumph. Triumph because our faithful God has promised, and when faith meets life, he will deliver. What we see in this psalm is the heart of somebody who trusts God. It's a heart full of praise to God for his faithfulness. It's a heart which knows what God has promised, and a heart which, though it may waver at times, recognizes that it is with God that we will triumph, recognizes that our faithful God will deliver us now, today, just like he has before, so we can trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your faithfulness that we can rely on. We praise you for your promises that never fall empty but are always fulfilled by you in the most perfect way. 
We praise you for the deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ. And you, Father, are worthy of all of our worship and praise and adoration forever. Amen.